Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. John Maynard Keynes, I think we have a picture of him here, uh, was one of the most influential economists of the 20th century. And the reason why is because uh, in the 1930s, when the stock market crashed and the world economy went through a depression, uh, Keynes challenged conventional thinking. Time Magazine in 1999 named him one of the most important people of the last century. The Economist actually named him Britain's most famous economist of the 20th century. Now, no matter what you think of him, though, even though he may have got a lot right, he got one thing terribly wrong. And many people still remember it and talk about it today. I read it recently. Uh, He believed back at the beginning of the 1900s that as society continued to industrialize and tech and machines took more jobs from human beings, he thought that life would get easier. In fact, uh, he predicted that life would become basically just one big vacation for the human race. This is what he he said. He said, for the first time, he's talking about us here. It's 21st century. For the first time since his creation, man will be faced with this real, this permanent problem. Wouldn't you like this problem? How to occupy leisure, which science and compound interest will have won for him. Keynes goes on to predict that in the 21st century, again, he's talking about us, we would have 15-hour work weeks, working as much as three hours a day. And I mean, swing and a miss, right? (laughs) Now, fast forward 80, 90 years later, it's actually been quite the opposite. As tech has advanced and industrialization has sort of just blown up, Uh, we found that work has been more invasive, not less. This is a picture of uh, Marissa Mayer, Exhibit A. She's, uh, for those of you who don't know, employee number 20 at Google. If we were gonna make a short list of people who helped bring Google out of its infancy into world domination, her name, no doubt, is on the list. By the end of her tenure at Google, uh, she had become the vice president of Google search products and user experience. Basically, the Google search engine and AdWords, stuff like that, that's her. She's kind of a big deal. Now, when asked about Google a few years ago and their rise to world domination, she said that it wasn't really about thought leadership. Rather, the key to their success was the employee's willingness to sacrifice everything for the company. This is what she said. She said, when reporters write about Google, they write about it as if it was inevitable. The actual experience though was more like, could you work 130 hours in a week? The answer is yes. If you're strategic about when you sleep, when you shower, and how often you go to the bathroom. So there you have it, businessmen and businesswomen. Want world domination? 
schedule your showers and go to the bathroom less. For those of you who are interested, uh, in 2012, Mayor actually left Google. She was named the CEO of Yahoo. Yahoo was Google's number one competitor. They had been falling behind Google for over a year at that point. They had to figure out how to compete, so they stole her. And guess what? Didn't work. <laughs> 2017, Yahoo sold their operating business to Verizon Wireless, and Mayor resigned. So what did she get? What did she get for 13 years of 130-hour work week scheduling her sleep and her potty breaks for Google? She got crushed on the altar of hustle by Google. These are the cold, hard realities, y'all, of what we call today hustle culture. Other descriptors for this include the cult of productivity, startup culture, really like this one, the cathedral of perpetual hustle. Uh, hustle. You've probably heard phrases like rise and grind before or TGIM, which stand for, thank God it's Monday. Mark Cuban, billionaire and television shark, sums it up best when he says this. He says, work. Like there is someone working 24 hours a day to take it away from you. This is the invisible gas we are breathing. Every day, odorless, colorless, can't see it, but it's poisoning our lives faster, better, more efficiency, optimization, continual improvement. We don't realize how much this has just sunk into us. I heard a parable uh, recently. Uh, the guy said there was two young fish swimming through the water, right? And they came across an old fish. The old fish looked at the two young fish and he said, hey boys, how's the, how's the water today? And the two young fish were like, this is good, you know, and they kind of smirk and swim away. And then as they get far enough away, one young fish looks at the other and he says, what the heck is water? And that's hustle culture. It's just the air we breathe. It's the water in which we swim. And yet I believe it is one of the great enemies of a spiritual life with God today. You ever heard of WeWork office spaces, by the way? So uh, we work office spaces, rent out office space by the hour, by the day, by the month. And as you can see from some of these pictures, their spaces are beautiful and stimulating. Uh, before COVID in 2019, I had read that they were uh, valued at $47 billion. Many were predicting that they were the Starbucks of office spaces. They were in 27 countries, had 400,000 tenants, 30% of the Fortune 500 companies out there were using their spaces. In their spaces, they have murals like the one pictured here that preach the gospel of TGIM. Check out all the screens. In their spaces, they have throw pillows that implore tenants to do what you love. They have neon signs that radiate to everyone. Hustle harder. Even the cucumbers in the water coolers have carved into them. Can you read it? Don't stop when you're tired. Stop when you're done. Talk about drinking the Kool-Aid. 
Ann Peterson wrote an article in BuzzFeed a few years ago called How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. In that article, she describes this millennial phenomenon, which I think is a generational phenomenon called uh, adulting. Hashtag adulting, right? Basically, it's this, it's this phenomenon where, where because our generation is so infatuated and obsessed with work, we just can't bring ourselves to find the energy to do like normal everyday tasks or household chores that our grandparents did every single week, you know, a generation or two ago. Tasks like mowing the lawn, outsourced, vacuuming the car. The company will come over to my house and do it for me. Even simple tasks like registering to vote, sharpening the knives, scheduling a dentist appointment, whatever. I just ain't nobody got time for it. Peterson writes this in the article. She says, it's not as if uh, I were slacking in the rest of my life. I was publishing stories, writing two books, making meals, executing a move across the country, planning trips, paying my student loans, exercising on a regular basis. But when it came to the mundane, when it came to the medium priority, or this is the key here, y'all, when it came to the stuff that wouldn't make my job easier or my work better, I avoided it. And this is the moral compass of a generation. Everything in our life has to be bent toward the God of worship. And I'll go ahead and tell you, she's a jealous God. Our jobs can't just be jobs anymore, right? They're not just careers, they're callings. We go to them to get our identity. We go to them to get our sense of self-worth. We go to them and expect to find meaning made from them. As the church continues to decline in the West, work is becoming the new religion. And employers aren't dumb. They're learning how to exploit that, to exploit the gaping God-sized hole in our hearts and pretend like somehow they can fill that up with work. I'm not overstating this, y'all. They're carving stuff into the cucumbers. They're putting like meditation rooms and nap pods and gyms and lots of succulents and exposed brick walls into all of our workspaces. And you're like, why? Well, it's, it's a perk, right? They're trying to create this little slice of heaven on earth at work, but also they're just blurring the lines between work and the rest of your life. Have you seen some of the mission statements, by the way, of the organizations today? And how ridiculously, but also explicitly, they try to overpromise meaning and overpromise significance to you if you'll just work for them or become their client. <clears throat> Spotify, a company that lets you listen to music, says that its mission is to unlock the potential of human creativity. Wow. Dropbox, a company that lets you upload stuff says its purpose is to unleash the world's creative energy by designing a more enlightened way of working. That feels important. <laughs> what do you do for a living? I unleash the world's creative energy. <laughs> wow, I just do taxes, you know, whatever. I, I teach the sixth grade. Okay, um, McDonald's.
the place that created the McRibs, <laughs> says its mission is to make delicious, feel-good moments easy for everyone. This is how we uniquely feed and foster communities. Hmm. Anheuser-Busch, the company that sells Budweiser, says their mission is to lift up our neighbors to create a future everyone can celebrate and everyone can share in. Now look, I love the Clydesdales and the dog commercial, whatever. Like this, they're cute. We're going to see a new one here in a week. But I mean, come on, Budweiser. This week I, I, was, I was on Google actually, and I found this like gag uh, website where they would randomly generate a mission statement for your organization if you just click the button. Literally, this was the, the tagline on the website. And I quote, generate a mission statement packed full of the latest buzzwords guaranteed to impress your staff and your clients. And it's like, there it is. There it is. Comedians, by the way, are the new prophets of our generation because there it is. Peterson goes on in her BuzzFeed column uh, to talk about how BuzzFeed used to be thought of, or excuse me, uh, burnout used to be thought of as like uh, something you would find in high stress work environments, you know, for the CEOs, the ER doctors, whatever. And if they needed to be fixed, they could just go on a vacation or two, drink a coconut drink and then come back and all would be better. But now burnout's not for the few, we're realizing it's for the many. And it's not just like a cold that you can cure with a few sick days off, it's a chronic disease. This is what she writes. She says, burnout's our base temperature. It's our background music. It's the way things are. It's our lives. In the movie version of this story, the burnout person moves to an island to rediscover the good life or figures out how he loves woodworking and opens a shop. Well, but that's the sort of fantasy solution that makes millennial burnout so pervasive. You don't fix burnout by going on vacation. You don't fix it through life hacks like Inbox Zero or using a meditation app for five minutes in the morning or doing Sunday meal prep for the entire family or starting a bullet journal. You don't fix it with vacation or an adult coloring book or anxiety baking or the Pomodoro technique or overnight oats. The problem with holistic, all-consuming burnout is that there's no solution to it. I disagree, but this is her perception. There's no solution to it. You can't optimize it to make it in faster. You can't see it coming like a cold and start taking the burnout provision uh, version of Airborne. And to a certain degree, she's right. Did you know that the World Health Organization found in 2016 that if you work 55 hours or more a week, you are at risk of a serious, a severe health hazard. All sorts of increases in all the bad things happening to you. 55 hours or more. Proving the hustle is killing us. Now, it's not just work either, right? This has become just a way of life for us. It's leaking on our kids. It's all they know. Optimized, efficient life, stack full schedule up and to the right, continuous improvement, young man, young woman. Leaks on our faith. See, faith isn't really all that valuable for work. Like you can't, it doesn't make work better. So what do we end up doing? We end up like winnowing it down to the irreducible minimum. So we do just enough. I'll get my five minute quiet time in two days, three days a week, right? And I'll come to church once, twice. I'll just get in enough to make myself feel good. 
But then before we know it, we either hit a wall and just have a breakdown or the, the buzz, just like the underlying subconscious buzz underneath our life is anxiety. We just feel frenetic, hurried, unsatisfied all the time. Now in these moments of desperation though, if we turn to Jesus, he's there. He's there to help. He's ready to help. But if we look at his life and we try to walk in his way, what we'll find is that God in the flesh walked at a different pace than we do today. See, here's what I believe about Jesus. He was on mission, no doubt about it. 100% of the time, there was never a moment where he wasn't on mission. Jesus lived on mission, but he also lived unhurried. And we have to figure out how to bring the two together. We have to get comfortable really with bringing the two together in our lives. You realize Jesus lived the first 30 years of his life in relative obscurity. His ministry lasted only three and a half years. And yet despite the fact that he knew it would be short-lived, he still spent hours, days, sometimes weeks praying alone or in the wilderness, like fasting and fighting the devil. He would spend evenings uh, eating. He walked everywhere that he went. He went to weddings. He was late to his best friend's funeral, y'all. The pace of Jesus. Now compare that to the most powerful man on earth today. Now, Elon Musk, net worth $250 billion. A few years ago, Musk invited Twitter to come work for him at uh, you know, one of his organizations like Tesla or SpaceX. But in the invitation, he wrote this warning. Check it out. Uh, he said, I just want to warn you, there are way easier places to work. But nobody ever changed the world on 40 hours a week. To which I'm like, nobody though, really, nobody. Pretty sure Jesus changed the world. <laughs> maybe even more than Elon Musk. Now, when we look at the life of Jesus, what we see are what I would call today disciplines of disengagement. Silence, solitude, Sabbath rest, fasting. We'll have no time to address that one. Today. Fasting. These are, these are uh, exercises that rather than engaging in activity, they actually lead us to disengage and just commune with God. I would even call them defiant worship because in our cultural moment, they defy the hurried pace that we constantly feel pressured to run at. Now with the rest of our time, I wanna transition there. And I wanna talk about how Jesus took these disciplines of disengagement, like silence, solitude, Sabbath rest, and how he applied them to his life and what, like why specifically he did apply them. If you're a practical kind of note taker, these are your big things here. But I found studying the life of Jesus, when he disengages, there's five real motivations for him. All five of these are important for us. First, first Jesus chooses to engage, one, to keep a regular rhythm of time with God. And I know this sounds simple, but this is so vital. If you don't have a regular rhythm, you should, because Jesus himself did this. Luke 5, 16, it says, but Jesus, what that, uh, what's that word there? Often, often's the key word here. It implies a regularity to it. Jesus often withdrew 
to the wilderness for prayer. Luke 11, one says, once Jesus was in a certain place, a certain place praying, the insinuation here is that Jesus had prayer spots, like for example, the garden of Gethsemane. Mark chapter one, verse 35, it says before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up, went out to an isolated place to pray. Now what makes this significant is if you open your Bible to Mark and read the verses before 135, what you'll find is that the day before, Jesus had a real busy day. He was up all day into the evening, healing, teaching, loving people. Probably didn't get a lot of sleep that night. Probably was exhausted from the day before. And yet, it is a priority for him to still rise before the sun does and spend time alone with the Heavenly Father. You gotta see this, y'all. Intimacy with God was something Jesus longed for. It was his most important relationship. And I believe that is the surest sign of spiritual maturity in someone's life. Now, you'll hear about a lot of indicators of spiritual maturity in churches. And, and all of them are good, but none of them are as fundamental as this. You'll hear that a, a life under God is a good sign of spiritual maturity. You know, somebody's obedience, if you will. And while obedience is of vital importance, what I have found is that sometimes the most Bible-knowing, religious, obedient people there are can be some of the meanest people in the church. Then you'll hear of a life from God, right? This is the greatest evidence of a relationship. This is your great evidence of faith, the, the blessing in your life. This is the health, wealth, prosperity, gospel mindset, right? And yet Jesus undermines this from the beginning with his life because he proves to us that sometimes the very worst things happen to the very best people. You'll also hear that the best sign of spiritual maturity, this is especially a, a popular one today, is a life for God or activism. Look at my holy action and my holy rage for what is just and good, the things of God. Which again, there's nothing wrong with this. We just have to remind ourselves that our status and our relationship with God are not contingent on what we do, but what's been done for us in Jesus. Jesus is not a slave driver. He's a savior. God is not your boss. He's a heavenly father. And sometimes with my activist spirit, which I have, I mean, you, you know me, you know I'm about it, but sometimes I just feel God nudging me, saying, Tyler, do you just work for me or do you wanna be with me? With me, with me. Which again, is what I believe to be the surest sign of spiritual maturity. Not a life under, not a life from, not a life for, but a life with God, a relationship with him. And what you'll see is if you look at Jesus, his obedience his blessedness and also his activism all flow out of the fountainhead of that deep relationship with the heavenly father. Think about the grand macro arc of scripture, by the way. What's the story of scripture tell us from beginning to end? Genesis chapters one, two, and three, we see before sin infects God's good creation, God walks in the garden with, with Adam. Then sin is introduced, so what's God's solution? Jesus is born Emmanuel, God with us. What does Jesus do? Born a man, he dies on the cross. Romans 5 tells us it's to restore our peace with God. Then when Jesus sins, right before he does, he gives the disciples a great commission. He says, this is what I want you to do. Go make disciples of all the nations, baptize, teach. Surely I'll be with you always, even until the end of the age. Then he sends the spirit. 
Then fast forward to the end of the age. Revelation 21 gives us this grand vision of the second coming. And what do we find out? We find out that God will be with us. Revelation 21 says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They'll be his people. God himself will be with them. So translation, withness, and yes, I made that word up. Withness is the key to spirituality. And it's also your destiny. Our jobs are not forever, but life with God is. Live accordingly. Second, second reason we see Jesus disengage is to rest and recover. This is, again, it's an obvious one, but if it was so obvious, why don't we do it? Mark 6, 31, it says, then Jesus said, he's talking to his disciples after a big mission trip here. He says, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. In her book, uh, Invitation to Silence and Solitude, uh, Ruth Haley Barton talks about two kinds of tired that we experience in our lives. She says there's good tired. That's the kind of tired that comes after a day well spent. But then she says there's also dangerous tired. And the way she describes it is just right on. You tell me, sound familiar to you? Uh, She says dangerous tired is a chronic inner fatigue accumulating over months and months. And it does not always manifest itself in physical exhaustion. In fact, it can be masked by excessive activity, by compulsive overworking. For some reason, we can't quite name, we're not able to linger and relax over a cup of coffee. We can't keep from checking voicemail or email just one more time before we leave the office or before we go to bed at night. Or we can't stop cleaning or doing repairs and projects in order to take a walk in the evening or be quietly available to those we love. Rather than reading anything for the sheer pleasure of it, she's talking to me here, it's personal. We pile the nightstand with books and professional journals that cram our heads full of information to keep us at the top of our game. The idea of taking a full day off once a week seems impossible, both in theory and in practice. We rarely, if ever, take a real break or vacation, choosing instead to work through the holidays and break times. Not surprisingly, even when it is time for well-deserved sleep or well-deserved rest, we may be unable to relax and receive this necessary gift. When we do have discretionary time, we indulge in escapist behaviors. What do you mean? Compulsive eating? Anybody? Drinking? Spending? Watching television? Why? Because we're too tired to choose activities that are truly life-giving. Sound familiar? Yeesh. So what's your point here? The point here is that sometimes we need to give our overcrowded souls time to rest and renew themselves. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, this might be hard for you to hear, but that's not going to be through the self-medicating practices that are easy cheap and that we oftentimes choose rather over the long haul it's going to be through communion with God third we see Jesus disengage to contemplate important decisions to contemplate important decisions Luke 6 12 one day soon afterward Jesus went up on a mountain to pray and he prayed to God all night so he had an all night prayer session interesting why 
Well, verse 13, at daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and he chose the 12. Chose 12 of them to be apostles. Fourth, we also see that Jesus disengages to deal with overwhelming emotions. Matthew 14, 10, John, John the Baptist here, who was Jesus' cousin and like his hype man, John was beheaded in prison. His disciples came for his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus what had happened. And as soon as Jesus heard the news, what did he do? He left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. Matthew 26, 36. It's the night Jesus is arrested before he's crucified. It says, Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here, sit here while I go over there to pray. Then he took Peter and Zebedee's two sons with him and he became anguished and distressed. So again, why does he disengage here? Number three, to contemplate important decisions. Number four, to deal with overwhelming emotions. This is big. Now I wanna tell you another Bible story to illustrate this. It comes from the life of the prophet Elijah. Probably heard of Elijah before, but here's some Bible homework for you this week. Go home and read uh, 1 Kings 18 and 19 because it gives you this little ditty about Elijah's life and why he gets away into the quiet, into the wilderness to be with God. Now, the first part you're probably really familiar with. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah gets in a battle royale with the prophets uh, of Baal. They're on a mountain, both like hundreds of the prophets of Baal build an altar. Elijah builds an altar to God and they're gonna see who's God's the one true God, right? So the Baal prophets go first. They're like dancing around, doing their thing, trying to get Baal to bring fire down and Baal does, does nothing, right? In fact, Elijah starts picking at him. He's like, he's in the bathroom. Just give him a second. He's in the bathroom, I swear. You know, like that's, he's literally, that's in the Bible. You let, that's in the Bible. Read first, he's like, he's on vacation. He's gotta, I mean, he's gotta go, right? Then finally, Elijah's like, it's my turn now. But first, before I pray, let's turn my altar into a swimming pool. So they come over there and they just, it's during a drought. They're like, oh, I'm not sure about this. He's do it. And so they just pour water upon water upon water upon his altar. And then Elijah like just says a little prayer. He's like, dear heavenly, <laughs> Before he even prays, this fire just laps the whole thing up. It's an amazing moment. Baal is, is embarrassed. And then they slaughter the 400 prophets of Baal. Anyways, okay, this is a crazy story. So after that, Jezebel, the evil queen, uh, hears about this. And she says, within 24 hours, Elijah, I'll have you dead. Now, let me remind you, Elijah just called down the fire of God. He just took out 400 prophets of Baal. He had seen God manifest his power in his life in ways that most of us would only dream of. And yet the evil queen who had killed prophets before said, Elijah, you're on my hit list now today. And you know what Elijah does? He gets scared, afraid. He goes into like, I don't know, this sort of depressed, it's a whole mood, y'all. It's like this depressive state where he runs in fear and he's groaning and moaning before God. He's unclear about his purpose in life anymore, goes out into the wilderness. Really the only thing he did right was he went into the wilderness to be with God. And in this moment where Elijah's got the mood going on, you know, God's like, look, you're gonna go down in history as a great prophet, but I gotta coddle you for a second, man. And he does. And he does. First Kings 19. It says, in this moment of deliberation and desperation, God shows up. The Lord said, go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord's about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks and pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But 
The Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, I love this translation, there was a sound of sheer silence. And that's where Elijah found renewal. That's where Elijah found courage. That's where he found life direction. Once again, he goes out and names Elisha his successor next. And ultimately, that's where he found God. Now last, fifth. The fifth reason Jesus disengages, and this one might be kind of surprising for you, but it maybe is the most important, uh, is this. Uh, Jesus disengages in order to face down temptation. Did you know that? To fight the devil. <laughs> At Matthew chapter four, verse one, this is the most concrete and wooden of a translation of the Greek as I can give you here. It says, Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be, te- why, why? Jesus has just been baptized. He's about to start his ministry. This is at the very beginning, but before he starts his ministry, the spirit leads him into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted there by the devil. So sometimes our silence, sometimes our solitude, sometimes our Sabbath resting isn't just about taking a nap, is it? Sometimes it's the front lines of spiritual warfare. In fact, oftentimes I find that when I finally get quiet and settle my soul and open my ears up to God, that's when I have to face down my personal demons. That's when God really actually starts to convict me, allows me to see myself in the mirror of God's word. That's when he gives me the courage to step out and forgive someone or to love thy enemy or to have the patience and self-control not to act out of the flesh, but instead to be guided by the Spirit. It's in the quiet place where oftentimes the fight happens. But many of us are so hurried that we never even take a moment long enough to practice the self-awareness to see that within. I'll tell you one more story, okay? And uh, this, is, this is a good one. We just need to come back to this once a year as a church that wants to be a church that's unhurried and connected with God. Um, once upon a time in a land far, far away, there was a teenage boy named Daniel. Daniel. Daniel worshiped God. He lived in the land until the Babylonians came in and they ruined everything. They beat everybody up. They tore everything down. They tore the temple down and they took Daniel and a bunch of his friends prisoner back to Babylon. You've heard Daniel's story, at least parts of it. Now I'll go ahead and tell you, it's not a happily ever after story. Daniel lives his entire life in Babylon. You think the last two years have been hard for you? You think? Okay. They probably have. Daniel's life was harder. Lived under a pagan regime that was just as likely to kill him one moment as it was to honor him the next. Like one moment they're persecuting him or ignoring him. The next moment they're like, well, this guy's wise. We should listen to him. Then the next moment they're throwing him in a lion's den. Now near the end of Daniel's life, uh, he gets this vision from God uh, where God tells him the exile's about to end. And Daniel gets really excited. So what does he do first? He kicks off the Daniel fast, right? Which for the record is not some secret Bible code of nutrition. It's just a means to commune with God. It's a discipline of disengagement. So, so he, he kicks off this fast. He's like praying. And then all of a sudden, um, the, this angel appears from, angel Gabriel appears to him. And it's like in fire and the ground shaking and stuff. And Daniel faints. Like that's how scary angels are apparently. Because this guy's a pro. He faints. And the angel's like, hey, Daniel, uh, sorry I'm late. Daniel's like, I don't know, do we have a scheduled time? I'm sorry I'm late. 
I've been duking it out with the evil demonic forces of the prince of Persia. Right? It's this amazing, crazy chapter, to be honest with you. But what fascinates me the most about this chapter, every time I read it and compels me, honestly, is not what the angel says. It's not that the angel shows. It's what Daniel does, the actual circumstances of his prayer. Uh, Daniel chapter nine, verse 21. Teenagers, don't miss this. It says, as I was praying, Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the earlier vision, came swiftly to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. At the time of the evening sacrifice. Daniel was taken from Jerusalem when he was a teenager. It had been 70 years since he'd seen an evening sacrifice. Were they even offering sacrifices anymore in the torn down temple in Jerusalem? 70 years later, Daniel can't remember the sights of the temple. He can't remember the sounds of the temple. He can't remember the smells of the temple. He was a teenager when he was taken, so he was only beginning to understand the rhythms and the liturgies of the worship of Jerusalem. And yet, fast forward 70 years later, he's seen kingdoms rise and fall in the midst of a pagan empire at the time of evening sacrifice. Still, Daniel prays. So you know what that teaches me, church? It teaches me in the hustle of leadership under the pressure of cultural opposition, in the pain of suffering, and sometimes even in the face of imminent death. You know what allowed Daniel to thrive in Babylon? You know what allowed Daniel to be courageous in the face of opposition? Do you know how that allowed Daniel to burn bright rather than burn out? He practiced the daily office three times a day. That's it. That's it. That's it. So like Daniel and like Jesus, it has to be a priority for us. So I have two questions for you to take home and reflect on. Uh, first one's this. One, when each day will you be still silent and alone with God? Each day, when? I would love for you to do it three times a day. In fact, I'd love for you to work your way up to where you're spending about an hour, at least an hour a day with God. If you spread it out over three times throughout the day, 15, 20 minutes a pop, you'll find it's not as difficult as you think, but it'll change your life. It'll change your life. So when each day will you be still silent and alone with God? And two, when each week will you take a 24-hour period of Sabbath rest where you engage specifically, specifically, disengage from work, disengage from the hustle, disengage from all the self-medicating, whatever, right? And instead engage in the joys and the graces that come from God in your life. One and two, these, these have to be into priority. They can't be pushed aside or delayed when we are hurried. They can't be winnowed down and, and you know, irreducible, minimumed. When our schedule's packed, these have to be foundation blocks of our schedule, day in and day out, week in and week out. The disciplines of disengagement, silence, solitude, Sabbath rest, fasting, many, many more. These are the spiritual rhythms that allow us to resist hurry, hustle, and hyperactivity. These are the spiritual rhythms that remind us, I am made for more than productivity. My value is more than my return on investment. 
These are the spiritual rhythms that defy the false valuations, false identities, and false designs that our hustle culture puts on us. And you know how they defy them? By allowing us to do nothing at all except commune with God. They don't tell us to open our eyes, stand up, and speak out. No, instead, they say, hey, if you want to be renewed by God, you need to sit down and Sabbath rest. You want to hear the Lord? You need to close your mouth in silence. You want to see God? Close your eyes in solitude. Connect with him there. I'll close with one more excerpt from Ruth Haley Barton's book here. It's a great way to transition into communion. She talks about in the book, the spiritual law of gravity, the spiritual law of gravity. I thought this was such a good description of what the disciplines of disengagement do for us. She says, when a jar of river water sits still, kind of picture that in your mind, the law of gravity causes the sediment to eventually settle to the bottom so that the water becomes clear. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to do anything to cause that settling except leave the jar alone for a while. The same is true of the spiritual law of gravity. When we sit quietly in God's presence, the sediment that is swirling in our souls begins to settle. We don't have to do anything but show up and trust. So Heavenly Father, this is one of my deepest prayers and longings for our church is that you would create in our heart both a desire appetite and a longing to just show up and trust in you. You are good. You are the giver of abundant life. You want to renew our souls. You're the living water, the bread of life for us. So remind us of that. Bring us back to you daily. Give us relief in our overcrowded, overcluttered souls. And let us find the pace of Jesus, a pace that was on mission, but ultimately unhurried and intimate with you. We ask this over our week. We also ask this right now as we focus on Jesus and communion. It's in his name we pray, amen.